Welcome to the Portland Countdown, a project of the World Parkinson Coalition made possible with support from Parkinson's Resources of Oregon. I'm Dave Iverson. And I'm John Palferman. Each month, Dave and I take a look at a specific topic of interest in Parkinson's disease as we count down to the fourth World Parkinson Congress in Portland, Oregon in September 2016. And our subject today, Dave, is one that will no doubt get plenty of attention in Portland, and that's the role of genetics in Parkinson's disease. It's a role that first came into focus in 1997, nearly 20 years ago. That's when a landmark study of an Italian family known as the Contorsi Kindred showed that a single mutation in the alpha-synuclein gene could cause Parkinson's disease. As Dr. Christine Klein remembers, it was a finding that turned the field of Parkinson's research upside down. Dr. Klein leads the research group in clinical and molecular neurogenetics at the University of Lübeck in Germany. These times were very exciting, 1997, and this was exactly when the first Parkinson's gene was found, and that was the alpha-synuclein gene. And I think it's fair to say that this really revolutionized the field because, just as you indicated, at the time, people really thought that Parkinson's disease would be a a good textbook example of a non-hereditary, non-familial disorder. And therefore, this really came as a big surprise to many people. And I also remember in 1996, this was the first movement disorders congress that I attended in Vienna. So at that conference, Larry Golby presented the uh, so-called Contorsi kindred. This is the family that was later found to, to carry the alpha-synuclein mutation. And he actually showed the pedigree and he showed pictures of the village. And so this was a really, really new concept to the audience of the congress that really genetics and large families would even be worth looking at. And then when the first gene was identified, I think this is really when, when people realized this is a new era that's just beginning. And what did the Contorsi kindred in particular show for the first time? Well, for the first time, and I think this is even impressive today that we now know so much more about genetic Parkinson's, it's a tremendously large pedigree. I don't remember the exact number of affected, but it was like 60 or 70, even at the time when Larry Golby first presented it, and multiple generations. And he had, had identified and visited really hundreds of people in that family. So it was a very, very large pedigree. And I think what was so exciting was that up to that time, yes, there was the environmental hypothesis, but we had no clue uh, really what could cause Parkinson's disease. And I think this is what people really felt that they could extract from this family. In fact, the enthusiasm was so big at the time that people thought, you know, within the next five years or so, we can cure Parkinson's because finally we'll understand it. We know the cause, molecular cause, we'll find a gene-specific treatment, and that's it. And I think, as we now know, uh, almost 20 years later, this was a little overly optimistic, unfortunately, although nobody would deny how much we have learned in the meantime. And what was found became so important, not only because it showed a specific genetic trigger for the disease, but that it, what was found was a mutation in the gene that expresses the protein alpha-synuclein, right. which we've now learned has plays such a large role in all uh, of Parkinson's. Can you walk us through that a bit more and why that finding in particular became so significant? Yes, so then very shortly thereafter, a very uh, important uh, new discovery was made, and this is when people started looking 
at colleagues like uh, Dr. Spilantini and others looked, you know, into the more in detail into the composition of the Lewy body, which is the pathological hallmark, um, not only of the patients of the controversy kindred, they also have Lewy bodies, but also of, of any Parkinson's disease patient. In fact, it is the pathological gold standard to, to look for those Lewy bodies. And it turned out that they predominantly were composed of alpha-synuclein. So this was the main component. And this, of course, made so much sense. And then not very much later, people started looking into the genetic etiology of idiopathic Parkinson's disease, so the non-familial form, where no single gene seemed to be responsible. And it turned out that these patients had, more often than controls, certain variants in the alpha-synuclein gene. So in the very same gene that was causative in a very small percentage of Parkinson's patients. This was seemed to play a role, also a modifying role, though, not causative, a modifying role by increasing the risk also in the overall Parkinson's disease population. And so this was, an, again, a very exciting and important finding to show that this molecule is really at the heart of any type of Parkinson's disease. John? So, Christine, so in 1997, when they found the gene for the Contorsi kindred, this was still very rare. I mean, as you're indicating, nobody in the general population of Parkinson people had the, had the mutation. But the link was that the alpha-synuclein was contained in the Lewy bodies, and so it formed a, a vital clue. Is, is that really what the genetics threw up at that time? I think so. Absolutely. I think this is exactly what happened. And uh, as you may remember, at the very beginning, people were even doubting whether this change that was found in the controversy kindred, which was really just a relatively minor, but very shortly thereafter, this was found also in other families. Then uh, the initial mutation that was found was a missense mutation. And then uh, shortly thereafter, people found duplications and triplications of the gene as another cause uh, of alpha uh, synuclein positive Parkinsonism. And again, confirming that this gene did play a major role and also, uh, again, linking it to the idiopathic form by showing that gene dosage, so too much of alpha-synuclein is not healthy, so that that is something that could actually link the monogenic form to the idiopathic form uh, where people carry variants that also increase the levels of alpha-synuclein, which is quite obviously not good for your brain. So, yes, so this was a, a different kindred called the Iowa kindred where they found that people got an inherited form of Parkinson's disease, but they didn't possess the same mutation as the Contorsi kindred, right. but what they had was extra copies. You mentioned some people had two copies of the alpha-synuclein gene, some people have three, yes. and the more copies you had, the worse it was. Is that correct? That's exactly true. In, in fact, you, all of us have two copies, one from the mother, one from the father, and then an extra copy uh, would be then three copies altogether. So this would then be a duplication of the gene on one of your parental genes. So, for example, you inherit two from your mother and one from your father. This would be three. Or you could even inherit three, for example, from your father and one from your mother. This would then come up to four copies. And just as you indicated, the more copies you have, the more severe your phenotype becomes. And also additional features are present, such as a very early onset dementia, a life expectancy markedly reduced, and, and similar complications. Now, you mentioned the excitement back in 1997 when the gene was, was found. Yes. And that some people thought that this would lead to a cure. It's become quite complicated that you, you mentioned there, there are a number of other mutations that have been discovered. You, you've been talking about the dominant ones, but talk a little bit about some of the recessive ones. These are the ones where you need more than one copy to get the disease. Are, are these associated generally with early onset Parkinson's disease? 
Yes, that's right. So the next gene that was found just a year later in 1998 in Japan is the Parkinson gene, named after Parkinson's disease. And this gene, indeed, for this to really get Parkinson's, to develop Parkinsonism or Parkinson's disease, you really need two mutated copies, as you just said. So usually you have to inherit one from your father and one from your mother to actually get the disease. And this also explains why pedigrees look very different for this condition, because if you require these two copies, your parents, by definition, are not affected, nor are your children. So it doesn't travel through families in the same way as the dominant ones. And as you also said, the age of onset here is, is much younger, although again, in alpha-synuclein with the dosage effect that we just talked about, if you have a triplication, for example, of the gene, then also your age of onset goes down to about 40 years, uh, whereas uh, that of uh, Parkin mutation carriers on average is about in the early, it's about 33, so in the early 30s. But some, and in the initial families from Japan, some people had a very early age of onset, really called juvenile Parkinson's disease, which is defined as age of onset below 20. But really, on average, it's, it's a bit later. It's in the early 30s in, in most populations. And some patients, even with Parkinson mutations, can be 40, 50, or even 60 years old before they develop the disease. But that's more the exception. Now, is it true that some of these recessive mutations present without alpha-synuclein, without Lewy bodies? Yes making it even more complicated. Yes, that's also very true. And maybe before I go into detail, I should mention that uh, postmortem examinations on these patients are quite rare and quite scarce. And this is actually a problem. So if we could increase the number of, of autopsies uh, from these patients, I think this would be really a very important and major step forward. Uh, so for Parkin, it's, it's, a, it's around 10 that have been published in the literature. And there are some, uh, probably like about a third of the published ones that do show Lewy bodies and containing alpha-synuclein. And then the, the majority, although not the vast majority, did not show these Lewy bodies. For pink one, another recessively inherited form of Parkinsonism, similar clinically, uh, also with an earlier age of onset, there's, to my knowledge, only one autopsy study published with alpha-synuclein deposits. And uh, with respect to DJ1, the third gene causing a similar phenotype, I'm not aware at the moment of any pathological report. So I think we have a big knowledge gap here, actually. So it's possible that there's a completely different pathology connected with some of these mutations than others, right? They don't all necessarily have to be alpha-synuclein driven. That is probably true. Uh, that is true. Um, however, I think one other thing that we have learned is that the pathology may be less of a gold standard than we would have liked it to be, or at least that there is not this you know, this direct, you know, pathology genotype correlation that we would have hoped for. For example, in LARC2, another, uh, again, dominantly inherited gene, the most common known cause of Parkinson's disease, in fact, autopsy studies have revealed a very large spectrum of different findings, even in members of the same family with the same mutation, ranging from very typical PD-type pathology to Alzheimer-type pathology without any Lewy bodies, for example even in the same family. So I think we see a broad spectrum. Okay, so maybe then you should... LERC2 stands for leucine-rich repeat kinase 2. Geneticists seem to get very excited about LERC2. Yes. Can you tell us why, Christine? I guess that part of the excitement really comes from the fact that this is a very is the most common cause, known cause of Parkinson's disease. And in some populations, it really accounts for a very large number of patients. For example, it was found that in the Ashkenazi Jewish population, as well as in the North African Arab population, about every third case 
of Parkinson's disease, of seemingly idiopathic Parkinson's disease, is caused by the most common mutation in this gene, which is the G2019S mutation. So it really plays a, a big, big role in some populations. And this is quite exciting and has also led to really even interest of pharmaceutical companies to start and hopefully develop gene-specific, uh, protein-specific medications. I'd like to pursue for a moment, Dr. Klein, what this then is telling us about the nature of Parkinson's disease, because it seems like some of these genetic mutations cause a kind of Parkinsonism that doesn't necessarily have Lewy bodies, which we thought were the hallmark of the disease. So then the question becomes, are Lewy bodies the hallmark of the disease, or do we have a variety of diseases? Do you know what I mean? Are we beginning to sort of rethink what the disease actually is? Yes, I agree with you, and this is a very, very difficult and important question that I cannot definitively answer. Um, but I think, uh, first of all, it is probably fair to say that we can speak of several Parkinson's diseases, plural. So I think this is something that we really have learned. This is not just one disease, but there are different Parkinsonisms or different entities, sub-entities of Parkinson's disease that can be defined based on the genetic of finding in, in the respective group of patients. And if you decide that the gene or the mutation is your gold standard, let's say the LARC2 mutation, then, uh, and this was, I, I think, came as a surprise to us, then you have to be prepared for the fact that uh, not every patient will have Lewy bodies, for example. Uh, same is true for Parkin. Uh, on the other hand, if you define your Lewy body as the hallmark, as we have always done before, then you have to be prepared for many different causes, different genes that can cause Lewy bodies, as well as patients with no identifiable genes. So I think no matter where you start, uh, you always end up with a kind of a mixed group. I think this is probably also one of the revolutions that we didn't really want to happen. I think 20 years back when, you know, coming back to the beginning of the interview, uh, we thought that everything would be very straightforward and uh, would be a perfect match. And I think this is what we have learned. It is not. Hmm. And does that then mean, if we kind of jump forward a bit to the prospect for finding treatments for Parkinson's, right. treatments not that are not just symptomatic, but rather ones that would either slow down or stop the progression of the disease, that we have to think of that as a plural also, that it's treatments um, because of the variety of, of how this disease manifests itself. Is that right? I think so, probably. I mean, if you think about it, uh, you know, from the perspective that Parkinson's disease, the moment it manifests to the patient or to the doctor clinically, I, I, this is always, if you will, a late stage of the disease. It, it is an early stage clinically, but it's a late stage pathologically because uh, at this very moment, about 60 to 70 percent of your cells have already died in the substantia nigra. So what we're really looking for is, uh, is something to, you know, to influence or to, to ameliorate, I guess, or to stop the, whatever pathological processes uh, take place at, the very, you know, at, a, at a very early stage. And for this, it may be very important to have something very specific, or it might be very helpful to have something very specific. So, for example, if we know that Parkinson and Pink 1, you know, definitely are, to some degree, mitochondrial diseases, if we could pick them up early enough and could stabilize the mitochondria somehow, this might be the right thing for these types of diseases, whereas uh, interfering with LARC2 kinase activity, this might be the right thing for LARC2 mutation carriers. So th this could be possibly, however, there's also, as there is a final common pathway for sure, maybe there could even be also a way um, of addressing that 
because I think it will be very difficult uh, to find something that is so disease gene-specific and then to find the individuals that are in, in this very early stage of the disease because they don't even present anything clinically yet. And so that's a big challenge. So, so this would seem in some ways to challenge what I've always heard to be the kind of conventional wisdom about genetics, which is that by understanding how this, these genetic connections work. It will teach us something about the underlying pathways and the disease more broadly for idiopathic, non-genetic forms of Parkinson's as well. And so we want to focus on what seems like a small percentage because it can teach us something that will apply more broadly. But if I'm understanding you correctly, it sounds like that may not necessarily be the case, right? Well, yes and no. I, <laughs> I think it is uh, I, I think it's oversimplifying matters if we said it was. Of course, however, every review article I'm writing or every grant will, you know, use exactly that notion to justify why I'm studying genetic diseases. And I think to some extent this is true. And I think we have been able to confirm some extremely interesting things. We already covered alpha-synuclein and uh, the fact that, you know, alpha-synuclein is simply the most uh, abundant protein found in Lewy bodies in any Parkinson's, in, in almost any Parkinson's disease patient, or mitochondrial dysfunction, which is so intimately connected with Parkinson and PINK1, for example, uh, is obviously something that was also even discovered in the early 80s in idiopathic Parkinson's disease, that there's something wrong with the mitochondria of Parkinson's patients and uh, and their maintenance and, and function. And, and so I think, yes, to some degree, I think we have confirmed very nicely some of these uh, hypotheses. On the other hand, yeah, it's, it's like I said at the beginning, it's oversimplifying this. Maybe there's also one other aspect that I find particularly intriguing, and that could be something, um, again, in favor of studying uh, genetic forms, and that is the fact that many patients, sometimes most mutation carriers, uh, I should now speak of mutation carriers, so unaffected individuals that have a mutation that can cause Parkinson's disease and has been shown to cause Parkinson's disease, but some people never go on to develop the disease. So, for example, we then speak of penetrance of the gene can be reduced to, for example, 30% or so. For example, in LARC2, not everybody develops the disease. Even in alpha-synuclein, not everybody who carries the mutations develops the disease. And if we could understand better what these individuals who carry a mutation but who are unaffected and who remain unaffected throughout their life do better than those, sometimes their family members, who have the same mutation and do develop the disease, I think this could be a very potent uh, way of addressing the disease or even preventing maybe the disease. Hmm. And just one last question. Are you optimistic at this point that our greater understanding of genetics will lead, in fact, to disease-modifying treatments? Um, yes, I remain optimistic, although I have to admit uh, that the, the pace um, at this is, uh, happening is slower than we would have all hoped for. But I think there is reason to believe that we can, uh, you know, that we can derive maybe even uh, new therapies from this knowledge. And, and I think this is probably due to the fact that there are some, some really very exciting new tools that have, have now emerged. And, and one of them, I think, um, is, for example, uh, IPS cells, so induced pluripotent stem cells from patients, for example, with mutations that can be used as a, as a very potent screening tool 
for new med medications, for example. Then there is the technology of gene editing, whereby we can now generate um, really isogenic controls. So a control uh, that carries the exact same genome um, or genetic information as the, the, the patient with the mutation, but in, in whom this mutation has been corrected. So, so far, this can only be done in vitro. But I think these tools that are new and that have only emerged in the last, let's say, five years or so, could potentially really uh, lead to the development and finding of, of specific treatments. That was Dr. Christine Klein. And Dave, I, I've thought a lot about genetics and these genetic forms of Parkinson's. And in some ways, these very rare familiar forms, they're like animal models of the disease. They mimic, in some ways, some features of Parkinson's and not others. And they provide clues and ways to study the disease, but they're not the same disease that you and I have. So, for instance, in one genetic variant, too much or too little of a, a particular enzyme might lead to increased aggregation of alpha-synuclein, which causes a Parkinson-like condition. But that's going to be different from people who don't have the gene. So it's, it's not clear how we should think about these things. I think that's right. I mean, we it's become such conventional wisdom now that a disease that we once thought didn't have any genetic component does and that we can learn so much from that and that by understanding these, albeit rare cases, it will provide a greater understanding of idiopathic Parkinson's, the Parkinson's disease that most people have. But she seemed to actually call that into question, which I found fascinating. At one point, she even said, you know, this is the revolution that we didn't really want, which I thought was a refreshingly candid answer that maybe these specific kinds of genetic mutations are so specific that they'll teach us something about it, but they won't necessarily be generalizable beyond that. So it's fascinating, but it actually made me scratch my head about a bit about, about this sort of common thought now that genetics is going to provide the clue for further understanding of Parkinson's. It also runs into the dogma that if there aren't any Lewy bodies, it's not Parkinson's disease. That's true of some genetic forms, but there's some genetic forms, particularly for early onset Parkinson's, where they don't have Lewy bodies, but they've got something that looks a lot like Parkinson's clinically. So I don't know if the pathology doesn't define it and the genetics doesn't define it, what defines the disease that is called Parkinson's? I, I know. I mean, it just becomes that much more complex. And it really does raise this question, which she, she commented on, about whether it's a disease or diseases plural and if it seems to be the latter then does that mean we need you know multiple solutions but not just one and that seems likely of course but it seems like in some ways the more we learn the more we know the less we know and and so forth and so on that what was once thought to be a disease that was simpler than some of the other neurodegenerative conditions like Alzheimer's in fact may be infinitely more complicated. I, I agree. It, it's quite disturbing. It gets more and more heterogeneous the more we know. Exactly. Well, we'll hope, John, that this becomes clearer as we march on towards Portland. And we do know, of course, that this will be a large focus at the Portland Countdown. And I'm, I'm eager to see whether or not things become more clear in the year ahead. And so we will leave it at that. Until next time on the Portland Countdown, I'm Dave Iverson. And I'm John Palferman. Portland Countdown is brought to you by the World Parkinson Coalition with technical support provided by Danny Bringer. Special thanks to our expert guests who make this series possible and who serve the Parkinson's community. 
Support for Portland Countdown comes from Parkinson's Resources of Oregon. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit WPC2016.org to learn about the upcoming Fourth World Parkinson Congress in September 2016.